It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Stephen. Al was on holiday. On today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Andy Burnham and you ask us who understands Englishness the best. Keir Starmer, Boris Johnson or Gareth Southgate. Stephen, welcome back from your holiday. Thank you. Did you have a nice time? I had a lovely time. We went for lots of walks. We, I was actually went to the sea. I was near the sea. I, you know, I'm not really a water person, but it was nice to, you know, look at the, look at the North Sea rather than actually interact with it. Yeah, I went to <laughs> Park Museum, which is always very nice. Actually, the one thing I, I didn't like and the thing I've discovered about myself this year is that my brain on a by-election wakes me up at 4am regardless of the following things. One whether or not the by-election count is due not to happen, not to, not to happen in five, part the pool. If I'm on holiday last week, or most maddeningly of all, if I have gone to bed after the result, Cheshire and Hamilton, <laughs> when I literally at four o'clock woke up and by-election, by-election, <laughs> the most wonderful dream than the Liberal Dem. Oh, wait, no, that actually did happen. <laughs> but I kind of woke up, you know, at, at 4 a.m. and this kind of, and I kind of lay there thinking... Okay, I might as well just get up and find out if my um, if I am going to spend a large chunk of of Friday doing the kind of what I always associate as the kind of like you know. Well, I mean, obviously, I wasn't abroad. I was in Whitby, but during my honeymoon, the Labour Party. Well, there was something. I to be honest, I still don't really know quite the ins and outs of the various rows in the Labour Party that happened in November 2015, but there were a lot. And <laughs> I always had my phone <laughs> off then in the airport lounge on the way, you know, arriving back in Heathrow, kind of turning on kind of a sort of weird decontextified stuff about like shoot to kill and maybe something to do with Ken Livingston. <laughs> and so I kind of think, you know, it's going to be like that. And then, of course, it wasn't, which was a huge relief. Although I think the weird thing is, because although, um, as NS readers will know, my profile of Andy Burnham came out last week, I had written it some weeks before in part as a kind of like, well, I'm going away, but here's a profile. And it, of course, coincided with this poll. The, the really interesting thing I think about the by-election, I'm intrigued to know what you make of this, Anoush, is that regardless of the result, there was not going to be a change of Labour leadership because there is no, at the moment, viable alternative candidate. The only candidate, and I thought it was really interesting, you kind of seeing the way that the mood music really changed how people write about things. Because, you know, Sky did this story, which it kind of, yeah, included the sort of arresting statistic and four out of 10 Labour members thought and Keir Starmer should resign. Mm -hmm. um, now, I'm not very good at maths, 
But my understanding is that six is a bigger number than four. <laughs> um, but I think the really interesting thing about that is it kind of showed just how if the mood music is against you, then everything gets written up in the sort of most kind of critical way possible. But the, the striking thing I thought about that poll was that it showed them the only candidate who there is more hunger for. I mean, one does not want to come back till the end of his term, as he says to me in his profile. And he, you know, he, he is incredibly aware that resigning midway through, which he would have to do, unlike Boris, he could not double job because his mayoralty includes a police and crime commission. You cannot, you can't hold both jobs at the same time. Then resigning midway through his term, like fighting what, a by-election, which would presumably have to be somewhere in the greater Manchester area on a ticket of, hey, voters, I've just abandoned the job you liked me doing. Now I'd like to go and challenge Keir Starmer for a job he's currently doing, vote Labour, right? It's not a coherent pro- uh, proposition. Angela Rayner has the problem that at the moment she is not sufficiently trusted by the party's left. And it's very difficult for any of the candidates of the party's centre, Angela herself, Lisa Nandy, you know, anyone you care to name, really. It's very difficult for them to emerge as the candidate of Keir Starmer's failure. Now, they could, I think, emerge as the candidate after his sort of, you know, very generously defined success, you know, like... Labour have gained five more seats at the next election or something, you know, <laughs> derisory like that. But but I, they can't really emerge as candidates with failure. And the right of the Labour Party just doesn't have a candidate full stop, right? And, and none of that was really changed by Batley and Spen, other than the mood music around the Labour Party is happier about it. But that is obviously quite a big a big shift, right? In the, yeah, if you are Kistama and you want to remain Labour leader, this is a good thing that if you're not the most popular politician in your party, the most popular politician in your party being a mayor who is reliant on a measure of your success is a good thing if you manage it properly, as David Cameron did from, from 2010 to 2015, right? Boris basically knew that he could not be the candidate of Cameron's failure. Because, you know, as, as he said to some allies in 2014, he was like, you know, I, I've been in opposition it's a horrible, horrible, horrible world, guys. I don't want to do it again. So, yeah, I think in some ways the interesting thing about about what happened last week is it, it didn't change anything other than how the Labour Party felt about it. But what was your kind of sense of it, you know, kind of covering it deliberately and not when your weird reptile brain went, it's 4 a.m., time to get up? No, no, I think you're right. I think basically with this sky pole coming out and also the, the race getting nastier and nastier in the actual constituency itself – there was just sort of a heightened, I, I don't want to say excitement because that sounds like people were gleeful about some of the horrible things that were happening, but there, there was just a, yeah, there was a heightened journalistic focus on the by-election, which turned it into a story about, you know, this is the deciding factor on Keir Starmer's leadership. You know, even though, like you say, if you dig down deeper into the actual story about the polling, it's it doesn't look as bad for, for Keir Starmer as the headline figure about Andy Burnham suggests. If you actually look at the people who could take over him from him, i.e. MPs, there's not that much support. You know, the the, the one who comes up highest is Yvette Cooper. I think she got 35%. So, you know, there's there's not a huge uh, surge of support about around one particular MP who's not Keir Starmer to take over. As you say, the four in 10 is a very good example of when you <laughs> when you try and write up polling stories, which, you know, I have also done many times where if the figure isn't particularly interesting, you don't use the percentage, you use the X in 10 <laughs> kind of trick. The polling wasn't so bad, but it was kind of written up in this way that suggested that Labour members were kind of losing faith in Keir Starmer's leadership. 
coupled with what was happening on the ground in the constituency, there was this heightened sense that the Labour Party was kind of on the brink of crisis. Then the actual result came out. The Labour Party did something different than what they've done the past couple of by-elections and they kind of they, they took it for what it was and they kind of said, you know, we're, we've won Labour's back and there were pictures of Keir Starmer with Kim Ledbetter in the constituency. He went up there, you know, they looked cheery in the photos. They weren't doing themselves down as, as they as they so often have been and that we've discussed before. So I think they played the, the hold well as if it was a win rather than a hold. It, it's not going to be enough to quell some of the doubts that have crept in about Keir Starmer's leadership in the party. But those doubts were never enough for a, for a leadership challenge to be the obvious logical next step if it had lost. And I think that got lost on some of the commentators, even following the by-election. You know, I, I actually did a radio programme after the result. You know, you could tell the sort of questions had been prepared to ask, you know, is he going to be challenged for the leadership? The appetite among of the average Labour MP isn't there yet for a leadership challenge. And like you say, the problem is that there's not an obvious challenger who could get enough support, including Angela Rayner. And there were these stories and briefings about Angela Rayner potentially looking to mount a leadership challenge. But I, I agree with you. I don't I don't think that much has changed because of the result. But of course it matters a lot because if it improves morale in the party, then that's that's no bad thing. It was as if you'd never gone on holiday, Stephen, because you basically dropped this big story during the week of the by-election, even though you weren't here. Because I'm really interested in some of the stuff that Andy Burnham was telling you because he's he's an interesting one isn't he because we interviewed him together in 2015 he's one of those politicians who he he sounds as if he's trying to avoid answering your question and sounds as if he's trying to be diplomatic but actually there's a lot in there that he says isn't there like he is very much saying I have found myself as a politician. I know what my ideological kind of package is now and I am prepared to put that to the country. I don't know if, if that's fair to interpret what he said to you, particularly at the end of the interview that way. We we interviewed him together in 2015 in, you know, the dim and distant past when I was a, a Labour Party activist. I volunteered on his, his first campaign and obviously I have, you know, therefore have had a professional relationship with him in his office since becoming a journalist and, you know, leaving the old world behind. And I, I have to be honest, I guess I kind of went into this profile expecting to do a bit more of a kind of the lost hope kind of piece about him. Because when I say went into it, I mean, originally in my head, this started uh, life as a kind of, I mean, there's no way that this cover would ever have been signed off. But I kind of had this <laughs> idea of doing like a kind of yeah, Reservoir dog style cover of like all of the Metro Mayors. Oh, that would have been and good. And interviewing, interviewing all of them about like how they saw their thought. And hopefully readers will get to read some of the kind of things that I thought would be part of that piece, but obviously aren't, because then this became an Andy Burnham piece. The idea I sort of had was Andy Burnham is a bit of a lost talent because he wasn't particularly factional. He didn't really have a kind of um, posse or a sort of like, you know, there, there's an element with, you know, with lots of people, including people I think listeners would be quite surprised to know this about who they do still kind of basically go, well, what does Gordon think? There aren't really any Blairites left in the PLP. Yeah, there may be 10, which is why you don't get that in reverse. But but there are still lots of people who are still Brownites, not just in terms of their politics, but in terms of who they take direction from. And in odd way, because Andy Burnham, although he was kind of seen as a Blairite, yeah, he kind of didn't didn't ever really have a sort of proper sponsor in the same sense, other than, I guess... David Blunkett in some ways, then he'd kind of, I was thought might be like, oh, you know, he became a bit lost at Westminster, which is why his 2015 campaign was so kind of confused and why his 
politics appear to have been a bit all over the place. And then very early on in the life of the Merrill piece, I realized actually this isn't quite true because when you're in office, politics gets easier because suddenly your various complexities, they become more obvious, right? In the, when you're running to be the Labour leader and you're just like the shadow health secretary and you're going, I think we should change the economy, but wasn't I the continuity candidate last time? Everyone's just a bit like, I don't get this at all. But when you're going, oh, can I risk could be the what the fifth podcast in a row in which I make a dismissive remark about centre-left politicians thinking the only way you get good policing is just, yeah, like, number go up. There are actually lots of people in the party who are doing interesting thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, but I think it is fair to say that up until the point that Scandal in uh, the Greater Manchester Police became politically salient enough that he was going to do something properly radical and appoint his own police chief, uh, he very much was the number go up increase the police precept uh, by as much as you legally can every year. Oh, but I'm also talking about, you know, more house building, trying to unpick the 1980s deregulation of the buses. And you suddenly get a sense of him as a more complete politician. And then actually, this is the thing which links all of the metro mayors, both the ones whose reputations have shrunk in office and the ones who have grown in it, is that what they have either, well, what's been exposed one way or the other is what they are in office. And in office, your complexities are just, well, they're just easier to manage. But the interesting thing about that question, where as you say, yes, he was both in the piece and even more also very, yeah, even more kind of like, yeah, I'm I'm ready to leave. It kind of was right at the end. And I, I you know, kind of basically said, look, one of the things you've talked a lot about in general, not just to me, is that you feel freed by this role. Mm. And you've talked about how Westminster makes frauds of everyone else. You're always asked, you know, like, would you come back at some point? And I basically went, why would you want to, essentially? Yeah, like, how would you avoid coming back and once again, like becoming the sort of like, on the one hand, this, on the other hand, this. And then he kind of said, well, look, actually, I've been given clarity. And then, yeah, went on in spontaneous and therefore even more, I thought, interesting levels of detail about like where his politics have sharpened, where he feels his vision is. The thing I did think was interesting about it, and because I knew it was going to come out while I was on holiday, I guess I kind of thought the backlash would reach me because Labour MPs who didn't like Andy Burnham and would phone up to tell me off and then Labour MPs who did like Andy Brown and would phone up to tell me off but the interesting thing is the thing I thought was actually going to be the most striking bit he has now appointed this new police chief who I mean in many ways his justification for appointing him is you know is straight out of lots of the stuff that I've you know been complaining about politicians not doing enough right in the Steve Watson you know had a really good record for achieving yeah for turning around South Yorkshire police he has also said a bunch of pretty tough stuff about the only people I kneel, kneel for are the Queen, God, and, and mm. Mrs. Watson. I, I think the police are tired of, of virtue signalling officers and would rather we'd be capturing burglars, which, I mean, particularly given the impression conveyed in the Telegraph interview with him, is very much so like, what about rainbow laces? And he's like, no rainbow laces, only burglar catching, which, I mean, is an interesting choice politically if you want to at some point run for the Labour Party leadership. And I kind of thought that stuff would be the interesting, yeah, the stuff that caused sort of the biggest stink in it. But of course, the fact that there was this polling and the kind of the fever pitch around the by-election, as you described, clearly meant that it, it wasn't. But I did think it was was interesting to me. I kind of went into it expecting to conclude, oh, he's a bit of a lost lamb, isn't he? And actually, I know the thing that I think is interesting, and I think this is interesting about, um, well, I was about to say about all of them. I realise that isn't quite true because on the Labour side, many more of the Metro mayors are figures at the middle of the career of their career, whereas you know people 
like Ben Houchen has a long political career in Westminster ahead of him after he's been Metro Mayor. And this is very much, you know, someone, this is his first big job in politics. Andy Street kind of, you know, kind of exceptional in the, you know, is probably his last and only big job in politics. Tracy Brabin is, is, is sort of, in some ways, the most Tory of the Labour candidates, not in a, she's a Tory kind of way. But as in, she hasn't been a Secretary of State. Uh, she wasn't an MP before 2010. Uh, yeah, so she's therefore unlike Dan Norris, unlike Sadiq Khan, unlike Andy Burnham, although, of course, like Nick Johnson, the new Metro Mayor in Cambridgeshire and, and Peterborough. As someone who was, who was there the last time I interviewed him, what did you make of, of reading it? What do you sort of think of him? I really liked following your reflections on Andy Burnham through the piece. That's why I thought it was such a good piece, because you take the reader on your journey of assuming things about him and then realising he is actually on this journey. Because I remember when we were, when he, we interviewed him back in 2015, he was giving us the whole, I'm sick of the Westminster bubble, I'm outside of the Westminster bubble shtick, wasn't he? And it was when he said that there weren't enough Northern accents on the front bench. And we kind of had to gently remind him that he was a special advisor. <laughs> you know, some of that stuff, you know, it can sound a little bit shallow, but he obviously had had his finger on something back then because this has become one of the themes of modern politics, hasn't it? How obviously it had started before he gave that interview to us, but it, it was sort of rumbling away with people thinking Ed Miliband's team were a little bit too, you know, all of the same type, a little bit group thinking in Oxbridge intellectually, and they needed a few more kind of people from outside of that realm. It's got to a, an extreme where the idea of sort of drawing everyone from the London metropolitan elite is is now sort of incredibly unfashionable and uh, both parties are kind of pitching to to electorates and and places outside of that you know he was quite politically astute I think even if we we were a little bit skeptical of some of the things that he was saying so he clearly knew the kind of path that he was on and he's managed to match that with the policies that he's enacted while he's in office during his mayoralty which I think is the interesting thing because like you say it strips away some of the some of the criticism of him that is that he's sort of just blows whichever way the wind's blowing and, and doesn't necessarily stand for a for a particular strand of Labour politics himself. I think I think once you get into office, those things become more concrete and they do become sometimes they do kind of become less important as well because you do have policies that you can point towards rather than constantly trying to pitch a programme of policy proposals that might never happen. But I just love the way that he sort of shamelessly answered your question about coming back, you know, he, he, it was almost like a, a pitch to be prime minister, I thought. Yeah, and I think that is one of the reasons why lots of journalists like him is that you don't... The thing I knew on the journey to Manchester, particularly because some of the really interesting answers, I think listeners would be surprised at how wonky some of the questions that preceded them were. Um, it's, and it's one of those things where it's just like, oh, you know, like when I like ask him about like the demise of the spatial framework and, yeah, talk to him about, you know, like, the various stuff in Greater Manchester Police, you're just like, the thing is you don't have that incredible anxiety of am I just going to end up with sort of like what I always think of as like minister speak, you know, where they're like, well, I spoke to the permanent secretary and the permanent secretary agreed. But I do think, as you say, that the thing that, that I, I mean, unsympathetic is probably the wrong way of putting it because I think it is, it is unarguably true to say that the air in New Labour's inner core was sufficiently rarefied that Andy Burnham, by dint of having gone to Cambridge, not Oxford, and being kind of someone I spoke to for this piece, but I didn't quote in the end, referred to him as parentless, as in, you know, if Gordon and Tony were the dads, right? 
they said he didn't really have a clear parent. They said other other a, a bit than than David Blunkett, which is odd. Lots, lots of stuff about David Blunkett end up on the cutting room floor, including which I imagine I will use again because I imagine we haven't seen the the last of of pieces about Andy Burnham's thought. It is definitely true to say that compared to David Miliband or Yvette Cooper or Ed Miliband or Ed Balls, Andy Burnham had a slightly less easy ride of like the group of new Labour spads who became ministers. But the flip side is, is it's a bit like saying, well, you know, I didn't go to Eton, I went to St Paul's. <laughs> but I think the thing is, is that at the time, it just seemed really unsympathetic because, you know, loads of MPs, including ones who, who were backing him, went, well, yeah, it's prudent he had a, a harder time than Yvette. They said, but I had a much harder time than anyone in that, you know, gilded circle. I do think the interesting thing to kind of swing back around is that at the moment in the Labour Party, there are loads and loads of people who can only really succeed, I think, if Keir Starmer succeeds a little bit. You can easily see how if Keir Starmer gains 40 seats next time, then that ultimately does pave the way for the era of Angela Rayner or the era of Andy Burnham or the era of Lisa Nandy. But at the moment, none of these candidates, I think, could really plausibly decouple themselves and go, we failed his why. I think Andy Burnham could, but obviously there's a problem that in terms of the timetable for him, which is he would need to see out, you know, the end of his term of office. None of it works if this leadership ends in failure. And I think that is also true of the others in Albert for very different reasons in that they would be the ones having to, you know, pick up the pieces if the leadership ended in failure in, in 2024 or, or before. But I think one of the big challenges for Keir Starmer, who has been given a... He's been given a second chance in a really important way, which is, although there was no prospect of his leadership coming under serious threat as a result of this by-election, as he is reconstructing his office, if you are pitching come work for Keir Starmer now, it is an easier pitch, I think. If, if he had lost Batley and Ben, there would be no immediate prospect. But you would still be setting to, you know whoever the full-time communications director becomes, whoever so-and-so becomes, hey, do you want to work for this guy? Probably you've got a best before of May 2022. That's quite a hard recruitment round. It has made that easier, but I think one of the interesting challenges is we will begin to see if Keir Starmer's operation has got better, both if they can recognise that their interests and Angela Rayner's interests are actually broadly aligned. The interpersonal relationships there may be very bad, but the, pers- the political imperatives are, are very closely aligned. And then they can use these metro mayors as the asset to him that they are, if nothing else, because as long as Andy Burnham is the answer, getting rid of Keir Starmer this side of 2026 cannot be the route to that. So that all works pretty well if you care. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. So the question today is, in case you're minded to talk about football, who understands England and Englishness best, Johnson, Starmer or Southgate? Yeah, so Englishness is, a, is, is one of those sort of things that bubbles up in British political discourse sort of intermittently. And they've actually been, you know, two sort of pieces this weekend, both engaging with the debate. One is from Keenan Malik in The Observer going, you know, I've grown to love supporting the English team, but I just don't really buy that there's like a political a political thing called England that I feel is distinct attachment to separate from my Britishness. Then a piece by Nick Timothy, which I have to confess I haven't read yet, um, reiterating his call for an English parliament. The Labour Party does have a problem in North Wales and it obviously has a problem that is different again in Scotland. For all the Labour Party loves to talk about, oh, you know, how are we going to regain Scotland? You could replace every single MP who's currently a dashing shade of SNP yellow with someone in a fetching shade of Labour red and we'd still have a Tory government. I, I really like Southgate. I think his piece for the Players' Tribune is great. I think he does a really good job representing the national team. I obviously have some concerns about his in-game management. It's not like he is really articulating Englishness beyond a bunch of stuff that all mainstream politicians have to agree agree on, or at least have to purport to agree on if they want to remain mainstream. You know, these players are all English. They're all proud. They're all great, great, a great bunch of lads, right? This isn't any of the kind of controversial and difficult stuff about Englishness in lots of ways, right? And I guess this comes back to the political problem of Englishness, which is it's very difficult to have a distinct national identity when you are part of a majority of, you know, 80% of the, yeah, I think it's more than that, 86% of the population, an even larger percent of GDP, even more of the landmass, etc., etc. And this is the thing I think that, you know, again, having not read it, but having seen other people tweeting about it, and I am going to read it before I write about it. This is, I think, the thing that Nick Timothy is sort of actually probably correct on, which is that for there to be a meaningful thing called Englishness, there would have to be a meaningful thing called the English Parliament. Now, of course, we have this weird situation where the British Parliament is the English Parliament, right? It just de facto is, right? It has all of the same functions that are devolved to the Senate and to Holyrood in Wales and Scotland. And if you win in England, you have you have won. From a mathematically plausible perspective, England is the ball game. Although I think if I were advising the Labour Party, I would I would get them to rebrand as the English Labour Party. Not actually so much because of anything and it would cause them to do better in England, but because I think it would at least make them slightly better at remembering when they were campaigning on devolved ideas or not. And it would probably help slightly with the Scottish Labour Party's perception of being an adjunct. Of, of the party in, in, in England, if you went, oh, look, we have three parties of, of equal equal strength. The problem with all of the Englishness discourse is it just like, I just think it often is a way for like people who've been rejected by the voters to go, what we needed was like a slightly more Englishy badge. And that's why like the soft left of the Labour Party likes it so much. And that's why Nick Timothy likes it so much. But it's just like, you know, I just find it a bit weird when you have people being like, ah, what people don't understand about the voice of England. It's just like, I think we stress tested what the voice of England thought about Nick Timothy and the results were not good. <laughs> I think it's a really interesting question because really the underlying message of the question is, 
Englishness is what you make of it and how you exploit it or how you celebrate something that's not Englishness. Just kind of like attach it, if you're a politician particularly, to whatever you're trying to speak about. In terms of the question, you know, I suppose in his article that you mentioned, Stephen, Dear Dear England, that Gareth Southgate wrote, not directly in response, but sort of touching on the flack or the, the the debate about taking the knee before matches in the in the players tribune was a really good piece because it sort of it defined how he saw what the feeling of playing for England is and and therefore what the Englishness is that that represents which was a sort of a pride and an independent thought and a sort of communal strength and uh, sticking up for your teammates but also not just sticking to football, speaking out on the things that are important to you. So it was sort of like a, an inclusive and quite bold Englishness that he was trying to lay out in his piece. When you look at what the politicians have been saying in terms of, of that particular issue, you know, it's almost a sort of perfect represent, representation of the two men rather than saying much about what Englishness means. Boris Johnson prevaricated on the um booing the booing the players if they take the knee issue you know one day his spokesperson was saying he defends the right to protest and is more about action than gestures the next day he was saying everyone should cheer not boo you know amid all of this obviously some of his um cabinet ministers were were taking a stronger stance and some of his MPs as well then you had Keir Starmer who was trying to use the situation to say oh you know this is a failure of leadership that you haven't challenged the the, the fans who have been booing the players and it's Gareth Southgate who's the true leader not our prime minister so really I don't think what either of them have said about that particular matter doesn't it doesn't tell you much about Englishness it just tells you a bit about politics really so I suppose Gareth Southgate to answer the question I'd have to say that Gareth Southgate is the person who perhaps has expressed the most articulate views on England and Englishness out of the three men but like you say Stephen it is it's one of those subjects that comes around all the time so whether or not you're talking about English votes for English laws an English parliament what kind of nationalism we're going to see in England if Scotland went independent you know it's one of those ideas that constantly comes back and back around the Labour Party wring their hands about it the Conservative Party pretend that you know the Labour Party doesn't care about it and has a very narrow view of what it believes Englishness to be it is one of those things that people talk about but don't necessarily know what they're referring to when they say Englishness and I suppose that (laughs) in a way that's quite a good representation of Englishness in its own way in that it is quite nebulous and that, that people can lay claim to lots of different parts of, of what we see as our culture. And the fact that when people try and nail down a definition, it causes division. In a way, it's this strange sort of delicate topic that everyone talks talks around. And if anyone tries to nail it down, it just detracts from the whole from the whole idea of it, if you if, if you see what I mean. Yeah, although it's odd because I I realised that listening to you just then, I actually, I kind of have this sort of, oh, until you put it like I hadn't really thought about it this way. But one of the problems I think, particularly actually uh, for Keir Starmer, is that the joy of a national identity is it can kind of be whatever you want it. It can, you know, it can be whatever you want it to be. The bare minimum if you want to get elected somewhere is you have to like the place you're trying to get elected, just as if, you know, you go for a job interview, you have to be like, yeah, I've always been passionate about management consultancy. And if you don't want to do that, fine, but you need to, you know, don't become a management consultant. Don't, you know, don't do elect- electoral politics. And the joy of it also from electoral politics is because it's nebulous, it, it can kind of, if what you want to say is like, you know, Englishness is common sense liberalism or Englishness is, you know, robust authoritarianism, right? It can be, right? But crucially, what makes a politician successful, and indeed what Southgate did well in his Dear England piece, is, is an actually 
the successful part always comes from choose, from saying what's not in your coalition, right? The most successful conservative electoral result since 1987 in 2019 came in part from the Conservative Party going, do you know what? We don't want people who think Brexit is a bad idea and shouldn't happen in our electoral coalition, right? Those people need to find somewhere else because we, you know, that is not a product we're offering. Ditto, New Labour, right? Even though this, you know, was not anywhere near as large a group uh, in 1997 as people who didn't want Brexit to happen was in 2019, is essentially comes from going, John, we are not a party for people who want to make the 80s unhappen. This, this, is, this is not a project to dismantle Thatcherism. And this, I think this is the thing with the, the Englishness stuff, is on all sides, when politicians do it, what they kind of don't want to do is go, hey, look, do you know what? This is a thing which isn't, right? Even if it's simple as going, it's not very English to boo the, boo the bag because it's making a fuss. Or you go, it's not very English to do it because it's disrespectful to an anti-racist symbol. You can, indeed, you can anchor whatever position you want on the knee in Englishness if that's your bag. But I think one of the, the big problems, and I think you see it, you know, this weekend with, um, yeah, the policy intervention about, oh, buy British, which is, you know, been a Labour announcement under Ed Miliband, Jeremy Corbyn, and now Keir Starmer, when it's just like, who do you think you are opposing here, right? Who have you chosen to exclude? Because in many ways, how a party defines its identity is by saying, look, well, we're, we're not for so-and-so. And that's kind of how you show what you are for, rather than just going, you know, we are for Englishness. And I think that's often the problem that political Englishness happens. And it basically just boils down to people going, do you know what we like? 80% of the country. And it's like, well, yeah, doesn't everybody? <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.